Welcome, everybody. We've got David Agusniak with us today. And because I know how to pronounce his name, I figured I better do it because I'm sure Leighton and Ab would go, how do you pronounce that? Anyway, guys, <laughs> welcome to the Soil Matters show. I'm going to turn it over to Av and Leighton and David, and you guys have a wonderful show. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Uh, so, Dave, uh, why don't we uh, start by welcoming you, Av? Good to see you again, my friend. And uh, why don't you give us a, a you know a brief synopsis of, of what you're doing and uh, where you're going with it? Cool. Yeah. Thank you both for having me. It's a super honor, and I'm excited to share what I got going on. So uh, over here at the art farm, we're a permacultural principal uh, teaching farm that focuses on soil biology, mycology, and uh, community in general. Um, so, you know, we want to teach all the arts. Arts is a huge thing too that influences a lot of what I've done through my, my path and um, now we're just opening a community lab to provide our database collection, uh, all kinds of different soil science. We have a, a bento lab in there so we can start doing genomes. We're about to tap into the min-ion and start doing all that RNA stuff. We want to be able to do uh, plant genomes, mushroom genomes, and I'm really into the cactus, cactus myself mm. too. So we'll be tapping into like cactus genomes and helping like map some of that stuff out for uh, a lot of the communities where I think there's a lot of misinformation. Uh, me and my my good friend are or co-organizing the Southwest Funga Fest, so we'll be we'll be doing a really cool regenerative community uh, ecology focused uh, education festival that's coming up in July, and so. Yeah, but uh, on the day-to-day, -day, we just cultivate gourmet mushrooms and try to get that good food to the people, right? And, uh, and that, that, the good information, try to try to provide what we can, right? That's amazing. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe, David, do you mind, uh, let's, let's almost go with a, a bit of a basic, um, how, how are you incorporating some of the permaculture principles into um, fungi on the farm? I mean, so as far as like hyper local, I'm always trying to uh, create and uh, stack all my systems. So we're we're taking all the waste stream from the farm. We're feeding it to the chickens. They're going through it. They're digesting it, adding a bunch of nitrogen. Then we're going to feed all that to the worms and hopefully, you know, create a closed loop circle with the soil production there. Um, I'm working with all the local farmers, always trying to tap into hyper local, any, any input that goes into the farm all the way down to our liquid cultures. We work with uh, local beekeepers to try to try to get honey that's locally sourced to put into it. Uh, always stacking functions, right? Uh, every input has an, has an output that I think we can utilize it again for. So even down to the mushroom blocks for the goats, you know, once that once that uh, brown and white rock comes in, it helps break down the lignin in the wood actually, and then it can be used as a fodder for goats. A lot of people don't know that, but um, yeah, I think uh, as far as like growing principles, you know, you're always you're always trying to do the best. You know, hel uh, a healthy a healthy mushrooms a happy mushroom, right? So like your input again is always going to be your output. And so there's always things to learn, but um, yeah, 
we're doing a lot of preservation as well. Oh, uh, I think I, I definitely want to follow up on the preservation of, uh, of uh, are you talking about preservation of genetics or preservation of, of mushrooms in, in extracts and tinctures and things like that? Yeah, I mean, we're just we're just starting to get into that now with the lab. You know, I think I've I've had a different approach. I think I like to gather lots and lots of information for a long time, and then take the 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 full approach. I'm into like a whole whole medicine production and things like that. So spagyrics and um, uh, you know, just being able to recycle. We just got a extract craft pro that's going to be able to allow us to tap into some really cool ethanol extractions and we're going to be able to recycle and use about 90% of that ethanol and so you know just waiting for the right time for me is what it's been about I really want to get into the spagyrics spagyrics whatever you know taking all three essences of the plant I always felt like when I was making extractions and throwing away all this plant matter I felt like you know, part of the medicine's gone, you know, nothing against the cannabis industry. I'm a, I, I'm a full flower kind of guy myself, but, you know, extractions definitely play their part. And, uh, but again, you know, I think it's all the systems together coming together and creating like this, this bigger picture that a lot of us are missing. You know, I have a lot of friends in academic and bless them and I love them all, but I feel like sometimes in academic, we forget that, you know, you're, you're a part of that system and the, the, the layers of that system is really what makes it work. You know, it's kind of like I feel about our, you know, our healthcare system, you know, nothing against Western medicine, but I think, you know, homeopathy and Chinese medicine and, you know, even Western medicine all together are going to save the most lives. I don't think one individually is going to save the most lives. I think that working together, you know, we could create a system that could um, not be detrimental and not be, you know, exhausting our resources and, and taking away from other places. So this place does better. You know, I think, I think there's a lot of, a lot of layers to it and having an architecture background has helped me sometimes take a bigger, bigger picture kind of view. So I feel a little lucky in that sense. Yeah. Um, sorry, just one last comment. I just, it's, it's, uh, David, you've, uh, You've used the, the, the language around, uh, you know, many layers. And to, to many of us, the, the mushroom, what we see is what we focus on. But I think, I think when you think of, uh, I'm sure of what you teach, it's all about what's below ground. What we see is, is, is probably the, the smallest part of, of, the, of the, the fungal kingdom, right? So... Yeah, I think Leighton. Leighton, did you want to say something before I? Oh, I got so much. <laughs> but go ahead. You fill fill in with Av, and then when when I can, I'll I'll throw something at you. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I don't know. I, I always try to tell people a good examples like this, right? We see the tree, and the tree has its system above ground. It has its roots. That whole tree and that roots—that's one giant organism. All right. And so on that organism, you have a piece of fruit, you have a pine cone, you have a flower, right? So that, I like to call that the reproductive organ of this large organism, right? It's a huge organism, all of it. And then it has that one little part, but each tree produces either a pine cone, a fruit, or a flower. 
So that's the reproductive organ. And then inside that reproductive organ is usually a seed, right? So I call that the reproductive cell for life. So there's the organism, the reproductive organ, and then the cell for life, which is usually a seed. You can find it in fruit, pine cones, flowers, all the likes, right? So mushrooms, you know, a lot of people don't understand that the mushroom is just that reproductive organ, right? So a lot of the times that mushroom is fruiting because uh, usually it has the right environmental influence, uh, but like most organisms on the planet, once once the, you know you're exhausted, maybe you've eaten all the food, maybe you're a saprophytic fungi that's like digesting a piece of wood, right? You just see a piece of wood and a mushroom growing out of it. Well, actually, that there's a vast complex of mycelium. If you've never heard that word and you're tuning in, mycelium is like a white hyphal thread that, that looks like spider webs. Sometimes in the woods, you can lift a piece of wood. You see all this little white stuff down there. That's what we call in the mycological uh, world is mycelium, right? A lot of people, there's the coin, they coined the term recently, the wood wide web, right? And it's the vast network of uh, mycelium that's underground, right? But it's, it's digesting lots of things, you know, it's digesting poop, it's digesting wood, it's digesting agricultural waste. Some people have isolated it to start digesting plastic, you know, like I've seen somebody train it to digest a, a cigarette butt, right? So that's that organism, that mycelium is this gigantic organism and network that we we barely, you know, are starting to understand. I think Paul Stamets says every step you take in the wilderness or in, in, in the forest, there's a, a, up to a mile of uh, mycelial networks under each step that you take, right? So vast, vast organism that we don't see. And then that mushroom, that's a little fruiting body. That's the, that's the reproductive organ. And then on that mushroom, sometimes you'll see a gill. If you go to the white button mushroom store, the agaricus by Sporus, it has, has a gill on it. And then on that gill, it has a little structure called the basidia. And then the basidia has about three little basidio spores. And each one of those spores is essentially like a seed, right? It's a reproductive cell. And so when that mushroom, like most organisms, it's going to die, it's going to form this organism that, that mycelium is going to weave really, really tight. There's all kinds of action going on. It's one of the mis most misunderstood things in nature, I think, right now is like, how is that mycelium creating new tissue and making that leap? And like, there's a, I think the philosophy Peter McCoy told me about a long time is called the Spitzenkorper, right? So they're trying to like understand the Spitzenkorper and what's happening at that mechanism when that mycelium is making that leap, right? And so, yeah, we have this vast, vast, vast underground system. It's in the trees. Sometimes it attacks uh, living trees, right? And that's what we call parasitic, which I think is a a really misunderstood nomenclature too when we're talking about plants especially and ecosystems when we when we in our intervention have have the ability to say that this is a parasitic thing when it's like well maybe this intervention was planned over the last 2000 years and and we got a glimpse of it and we think that it's parasitic well really it's playing a a large 500 year role in this ecosystem and so it's like funny you know, people are like, oh, well, this Chinese elm is parasitic. But most of the times I see Chinese elm, it's like right where we put a road in the waterway. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, nature's going to fight back and grow this really invasive 
thing when you're like running over its networks and like put a you know dig up and rip its network and then put this roadway right in the middle of it i think nature deserves a chance to fight back with a quote-unquote invasive or parasitic species right dare we call it those um and so yeah i mean the mycelium is is all over right i think i just heard melden sheldrake say something like there's six million uh six million something six million spores airborne in the every year or something so like spores and and us interacting with fungi is like way more uh in depth than i think a lot of people understand even in the food that they eat and the medicine that they take you know well i love your philosophy because i i'm with you there's no such thing as a good guy or a bad guy they all work together uh, as a system and if you have one out of balance well it doesn't matter whether it's a good guy or a bad guy it's going to change the ecology and probably not for the better it's just going to provide weakness <coughs> so um so yeah before we go too deep on this i'd love to talk a little bit more about your your spent mushroom substrate are you are you refruiting after the initial or do you just get rid of that because you're worried about contaminants coming uh i mean usually like now that i'm at a commercial scale like in the beginning i definitely try to get as many flushes as possible um but you know i go for about two and then it's like taking up room that i need you know because i only have so many square feet to grow in um but we always throw them outside i actually did this really cool project uh where i started lining my raised beds uh because i just used some wood with it and you know water wanted to flow out of that six inch drain so i'd stack all the blocks around the side of it and me personally hunting mushrooms a bunch of times people say pleurotus which is your oyster species has to you know it's a it's a saprophytic mushroom but i've seen it growing terrestrial in a grass field a couple times and i've also seen it feeding off like minerals just right in this rocky runway of water and it was like obviously digesting um some some really interesting things to be able to fruit and so like i thought well, okay maybe if i just like stack enough of these blocks you know obviously we had a really great rain season this last time and in, in our monsoon season it lasted from the end of june all the way to september this year so um you know multiple flushes out of that but i was trying to create like a terrestrial species and so far I could go outside and like show you a quick video that it's, it's fruiting right now. And it was eight degrees last night with snow on top of it. And, you know, it just goes to show the resilience of any organism in, in, in a certain condition. And so I'm always trying to do all kinds of stuff. You know, my friend, William Padilla Brown kind of had the idea of like, well, why don't, why don't we just stack mad blocks near these you know shady sides of the building that get more moisture and like try to get you recycle those and i think those have you know some some environmental stressors that add to the enzymatic compound in the mushroom to make it a little highly more medicinal and that's why i prefer if i was going to make a medicinal compound out of mushroom that i get some from grown from nature because i think you know a certain setting you know allows that plant to give me genetics from the area that will help me survive. And maybe I'm not, you know, a biologist and I can't use the right terminology, but I think you all understand what I'm trying to get at there. Yeah. So 
So I, I love the concept of, of, you know, introducing the, the substrate to the local environment. Um, you, you ever heard of uh, Efren, Dr. Efren Chavez? No, no. Okay. He's, he's, a, he's a guy I'm working with on a project down here, uh, Wild Dog Crossing. And we talked about uh, doing um, IMOs and, and different, using different substrates instead of just the suggested um, undercooked El Dante white rice. And one of the things that we both talked about was utilizing these, these substrates after they've been gone through. Um, and because it is the perfect thing for um, collecting those airborne spores uh, to drop in on and then go ahead and uh, colonize. So I don't know. I, have you ever thought about that? I mean, it sounds like that's what you're doing outside anyway. Are you getting indigenous? And David, would you mind uh, sharing uh, some of the substrates that you do use? Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, in the beginning, I tried just about everything because I wanted to try to, you know, pair with agricultural waste systems like coffee or even like I knew furniture makers that were... Uh, you know, throwing away their sawdust, but for them, I'm like, hey, you know, separate the maple from the ass, you know, and then that becomes a big chore for them. But I've grown on straw, I've grown on manure. I mean, a pretty standard growing medium in the in the industry is um, it's called Masters Mix, which is just like soy holes and uh, high pre high high pressure. It's just like a oak pellets for a I can't think of the HFWP right now. I can't think of why that acronym slips my mind. But yeah, I've even recently been using like beet pulp and alfalfa because down here they grow a lot of alfalfa, you know. And so I know people that have used cannabis, but, you know, now there's more useful tech for, you know, cannabis waste. And um, so you know, there's tons of different recipes. I, I like to pair with like uh, spent brewer's grains as well. And you can kind of add that in the mix. Um, and most of that information is pretty open source, either in mushroom groups on Facebook or other than that. And then Leighton, as far as like, like micro remediation projects and stuff like that. I mean, there's so much potential there. There was like a, a there's a lab down here that's been dumping toxic chromium waste in the waterway, right? And that water happens to feed into one of the biggest Navajo water basins down in the Ute Reservation up from Los Lunas. And so a lot of these farms are suffering. And there's an organization called Tiwa Women's United who was doing a thing and got the community together. And then again, Peter McCoy came down to do a micro remediation project. And they had some pretty interesting fellows that were dealing with some of these radioactive materials come speak against it. And Peter found a way to get even dead mycelium. All right. So the dead mycelium, you could release it in the waterway and the toxic chromium would attach itself to the mycelium for whatever reason. Right. And it didn't even have to be living mycelium. And then that gave you the ability to now collect all this toxic chromium, grab this mycelium and then recycle it. And now you're not even having to mine for the toxic chromium. So, I mean, the potential for like mycelium to do, I mean, it, it's, I've heard, you know, they're the grand molecular decomposers, I think was what, you know, you guys talked about Paul Stamets, right? He calls them the grand molecular decomposers. You know, there's a lot of research that shows that they can accumulate heavy metals, um, 
you can simply inoculate wood chip bags and put them in waterways and start doing, you know, water reclamation projects and reclaiming, you know, spillage from mine damage and all kinds of different implications. I mean, uh, there's so many implications. So as far as like putting an open like block, it, I guess it depend on uh, like for IMO, for example, you know, maybe if there is a way that you could create a liquid culture at a big enough scale and like filter it out. And maybe if you like freeze dried the mycelium or, you know, somehow made it like a collection filter to where you didn't have the medium in between, the mycelium might be able to collect some of those like indigenous microorganisms in a better fashion than say putting it on rice. Cause you know, growing with the rice, who knows what else you're getting that's coming from inside of that rice. I don't know if that's what you're getting at, but yeah, there might be a, like a closed loop system that you can do that. You know, like I said, even the dead mycelium was able to attach itself to the toxic chromium and then recycle that out. So if you could do like, if you found like maybe like Ganoderma, which they use a lot in like the textile industry, right? Cause they're finding that they can cook the mycelium and kind of like actually in a kiln and make these like bricks and oh they're doing light fixtures they're doing you know wine bottle instead of styrofoam and uh, and so i'm sure if you found the right the right species of mushrooms and uh, was able to isolate that mycelium and either like freeze dry it or or cook it and then you know put it put it in a basket in your cedar collection box you you might be able to to do something really cool but i i don't know that was the first time i've ever thought of it sorry to go off a little bit yeah that that's what we do here <laughs> we go off on rants um so i i guess let me let me refine the question a little bit um, have you noticed in the areas that you've stacked up these uh, spent mushroom substrates or SMSs, did you see any local indigenous mushrooms uh, begin to flourish in it? Or, or has it always been whatever you grew in it is coming back? Um, that's an interesting question. I feel like the living soil garden itself, maybe there was a little bit more mycorrhizal action, but again, you know, just opening the lab and like having the microscope right there and, you know, learning from Matt and all his amazing work that he's been doing with all this new R database. I can't wait to just really start looking in the microscope and inspecting those things. Um, but, you know, it's, it's only been like a year and a half since I've really intentionally done it. So I would say this season, I will be more on the lookout. But um, in the last like seven years, I've been at this property for 10 years, I'd say at the last seven years, maybe it's just me going out in the woods and throwing like, you know, random mushrooms around. But the, the amount of fungal activity is pretty, pretty good around the area. But I think it what what has happened is it's like again, like I said, it's become like almost a terrestrial thing where instead of being a saprophytic thing, maybe it's feeding on the dead roots from the garden that's right there. Uh, maybe the mycelium has somehow become like a, a, a mycorrhizal species where it's like now like that I think the endophytes maybe it's like you were talking I think in one of your talks about like the glomulin that's like holding it all together it's like is this eating like this little tiny microscopic organic matter 
and it's created such an intense system that it's like not even really eating a lot because i'm telling you i looked today and there's a brand new fruit and it was eight degrees yesterday here in new mexico at 6,800 feet and uh so yeah i don't know i think anything's possible i'll, I'll definitely keep more of an eye out and let you know when i know more <laughs> well you know it's funny but uh, i don't think a lot of people understand that those blocks actually generate quite a bit of heat oh. um as as the as the Microbiology or as the the mycology um, continues to grow and try to fruit uh, and and you know bind up all those materials in the block, it, it gets to 70, 75, 80 degrees in in one of those blocks. So you stack a bunch of them together, that's going to generate enough heat to support a fruiting body even in a low temperature environment. So that's probably kind of explains why that happened. But looks look at what you've done you know, by default, you've created a perfect environment for them to cultivate. And, and again, it's like, yeah, please keep an eye out because it'd be really interesting that if you are starting to um, attract some of the locals, uh, you know, indigenous um, species of, of fungi to, to, to bring it to your bed, which is even better. I mean, that's just like a win-win. Right. And then, you know, being able to take those species of mushrooms that we like grew and then to take them into the lab and then to start putting them in fungal preservation and growing them out and seeing if we can even use them in like horticulture applications, right? Like if this is like this some crazy terrestrial species that fruits in eight degrees, like what do we have to feed it in order to, like you said, like create that system, you know, obviously it's going to take work in other places for people to mimic that because it's like a seed, you know, you get a seed from Georgia. It's great. I love, I love collecting all these heirloom seeds, but as soon as I put them in the high mountain desert, I got this eight pack of seeds and I'm like, shit, you guys get any eight in this motherfucker. And I put all six, but two, and then I might get four of them that work up here, you know, just because set and setting, but luckily I'm like super into uh, adapting things to their environment, improving the resilience. You know, that's, Again, part of my passion project is like mapping the fungal evolution over time. And like, because fungi have so many different mating types and I can't really grasp my, my head around this concept. I've asked a couple of mycologists and I don't know, it never really gets anywhere. So it makes me really want to like try to understand the concept of like how fungal, fungal mating types and there, there's so many available, like does mapping the 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 fungal tree of life to kind of show the evolution of species over time kind of like how a, a, a above ground fungus turns into a truffle and goes hypogeus uh, that's like an evolutionary trait that's like you know oh you've reached it as a mushroom now i just have to go underground and i can do all year round i'm right at this hummus layer that's perfectly ideal for me to live almost anywhere in the country arid uh semi-arid uh, drought it doesn't matter right they, they find truffles in some of the most drought-stricken places so it's like that's that genetic evolutionary trait where it's like well, yeah a lot i think a lot of these things and there again you know it's like here i am trying to understand it but there's this whole greater picture that i'm also forgetting to understand and it's that that's like what i was talking about with like mapping the, the mycorrhizal uh like networks right like we think that these plants only have like a relationship with these host trees or not trees, but it's like, how can we even quantify how big this system that this organism is actually interacting with, right? Like how many, how many other subspecies of mushrooms, like you said, are attracted to maybe like a, 
a pheromone or a terpene that this that this mycelium is putting out and it's attracting all these other biological components in the soil like the nematodes and all this other crazy stuff to this to this system right but we think oh well like this is this mushroom and it's always been association with this tree so it's got to be this tree that's causing this mushroom to grow or is it like this one armillaria species that we're calling parasitic the armillaria osteia right the humongous fungus in the mall here national forest right we were sitting here calling this thing a parasitic thing although it's like one of the largest living organisms in the ecosystem around it isn't dying so like is it parasitic or is it like is it like the police that's like going in there and like managing like you know who's allowed to thrive in my ecosystem kind of thing and maybe it's actually like mycorrhizal with some species of mushrooms together they may you know like and then all these lichens and algae life forms and like all this complex life comes together and here we are saying you know the honey mushroom is a parasitic mushroom that's killing this tree well like is it really killing that tree i i don't know it's like the questions like that so it's like we got to even start to quantify and understand how deep these systems of mycorrhizal like like mycelium are actually going and reaching and like how to quantify that without a without an invasive technique is pretty hard up to this point right i just i'm going to tell you guys about this i've just been coming across this theory the last couple of days it just came to me and it's like well how do we quantify this stuff right and so it's like you could dig it up with a tractor and you can like go 20 feet down and say, yep, this, this micro, my mycorrhizal network is going 20 feet down right now. We just destroyed that whole ecosystem. We can do what they've sort of done. Right. And they can take a piece of this mycelium down here and they can go in this giant radius and they can start mapping it and then they can start doing DNA testing and then they can see, right. Um, you know, maybe we could do something crazy like one of my friends who's in nuclear medicine, you know, I won't disclose any names or anything, but he did some really cool stuff where they were getting like uh, radioactive material and they were attaching it to proteins and those proteins would go into the body and attach themselves to the cancer cells and they were able to map it, right? But then we're like, okay, well, we can't just in inject radioactive dye into this mycelial network. Yeah, it'd be cool. We probably could see some shit and map some shit, but then we're probably going to destroy it, you know? And then my friend's like, yeah, that's could be really invasive to the, to that ecosystem. So I start thinking even more and I'm like, okay, there's that, that, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen him, but he's like this conductor who went around in all these ecosystems and he started writing a piece of music for every species of mushrooms. Right. So it started making me think like, oh yeah, these plants and these, these, these ecosystems are talking to each other, right? They're making these noises and maybe our, our, our frequencies can't hear those frequencies, but they're, they're alive. Right. And so this guy's a composer and I think he wrote like 74 pieces of music for each one, a species of mushroom. Right. And he hears the music when he goes out there. So this guy's dialed in, I think since now he's died. And since he started talking about that, people started quantifying, like they're hooking up machines to the mycelium. Right. And they're actually like recording the sounds that these are putting out. And so I'm like, well, holy shit. You know what I mean? If these are like, you know, like, okay, how do we send a message to the aliens or whatever? Well, how they're sending messages to us right here. Now we're hearing it. Now we're measuring it. So like, how do we, now send a message back and quantify all the way through it and like record that and so like i've had three kids so i know that like you know um sonar is a thing and i know that ultrasonic you know uh, ultrasound's a thing right and that's just sound we're measuring sound and vibration and so my one friend tells me he's like well maybe like 
sending it a, a crazy sound into this organism might not be good either. And I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. You know, so I'm so like, okay, okay, a little bit further. I'm like, you hear about like the mother tree talking to her baby trees, right? Yeah, yeah, people definitely, I'll answer that in a second, but yeah, people definitely hook up these machines to the mycelium and they're quantifying the sound that the mycelium is projecting and there's a whole composer who did a lot of stuff, right? So so I started thinking, okay, we don't want to send a sound into the mycelium, that probably wouldn't be good. But you think about like, well, these mycorrhizal relationships that they're sharing with these other organisms, right? And we've, we've somehow quantified the fact that a mother tree will send resources to its baby tree before it sends it to these other trees, right? In the, in the neighborhood, especially if it's one of its baby trees, somehow they have this complex nature language that, you know, we'll probably never understand, but we, we, we hope to understand. And so it's like, okay, so how can I find two things that are living in symbiosis and sympathy in, in, in nature, right? Communicating obviously in one way, shape or another, right? One's giving sugar, one's giving carbon, right? So how do we measure the sound that's coming out of that tree, possibly record that, send a message back into the mycelium at maybe like a certain hertz that's not really going to like change it. If, you know, again, there's no way to like know, but it would be really cool if we could send it back and it could reverberate and through ultrasound and maybe LIDAR tech techniques, we could start mapping this underground mycorrhizal network and really understanding, quantifying like what's going on underground. Like I've asked me like, what's like, yeah, we see a lot of, you know, like I heard somebody say that the mushrooms don't want us to interact with them. They're elusive. Well, I think that's completely wrong. They're like, boom, they're bright red and they're all these colors and these shapes and these like enormous alien things because they want our attention and they want us to grab them and they want us to go with them, you know? And I'm not saying like we need to start mapping these, but I think if we could somehow quantify the complexity of what's actually happening in the system, we would have a, a better chance to be able to understand the bigger picture and what's actually happening and stop labeling things like one way or another oh this parasitic thing or the or this bad thing right and so it's like um i don't know you know those are just like my own personal theories that i've never really shared with maybe like one or two other people on the planet until the other day but like i think there's some really interesting stuff now with this lidar technique right where they're finding all these ancient civilizations and they're finding uh, food forests that have been in these jungles that were created and they're able to map all this stuff right there's these kids on google earth that are finding these ancient civilizations by just like scrolling around and it's like yeah like how do we how do we incorporate that to map what's underground so we can understand and and pair with nature a little bit sorry again to kind of woo. <laughs> All right, so Maybe I love it. <laughs> so just to, to verify, um, yeah, there's been a tremendous amount of experiments being done where they're plugging in um, anodes and cathodes into mushroom and it's playing music. And it depends on the species of mushroom as and trees and plants. They did on hemp plants. Um, so they're they are generating a, a sound. Um, so that's real. That's that's not sci-fi. Um, and then I know people who have used uh, radioactive isotopes, uh, specifically a lane, um, to map out how fast a tree releases exudates. So she was in a forest here in Oregon somewhere, um, and she had some fellow students down in the cave, like 200, 300 feet below 
the surface of the earth um, connected to the roots that came through the cave so they knew it was the same tree and yeah they popped in an isotope and within minutes it showed up um, down in the roots down in the cave so we know these things are traveling very very fastly so you've got there's a company that came out uh, about eight years ago and this is kind of horrific and I, I backed away from them, but there was two companies, one in Colorado, one on Long Island, both were government funded um, and they were making nano chips. The reason they were making these nano chips was so that um, once it's introduced to the plant, every single cell will have one as it's being reproduced. So it was a way to prevent counterfeit cannabis uh, or that was the guys that they were using. Um, that if they introduced this nano chip or whatever to the plant at a, at a young age, every bit of that plant material would have that chip. Now there's a great way to do that. But again, you're, you're playing with God, man. And, and that's where I, I kind of was like, ah, that technology is too scary you inject that into a baby and, and, and now, you know, you'll have the DNA of that baby, whatever it touches, wherever it goes, uh, yeah, it gets scary as shit. So again, I, I stopped working with them. I, I stepped back because I just, the technology is too scary. for me. And, and I, again, look at AI already what it's doing. So, you know, those kinds of things are just going to start really dovetailing and, you know, I don't want to get into control conspiracy, but um, there are ways of doing this. And, I don't know, David, if you've seen the recent information that was released, uh, 2021, where they actually had a microscope that um, was was introduced in situ, so in place, and they were able to monitor uh, mycelium over the course of a number of days. And what they showed, which was, you know, this is groundbreaking, was that inside of that you know, mycelium network was actually hundreds, if not thousands of different individual species, both saprobes and mycorrhizae. So we know that they work in conjunction with each other. And we also know that the outer layer of the hyphae is very similar to a rhizosphere. There's an aqueous coating um, that's actually moving organisms, biology down as a, like a super highway. Then it gets really fucking crazy, and they've indicated that these funguses, both saprobes and mycorrhizae, uh, are allowing bacteria to enter into them. So, like shedding its outer shell, uh, so it's just the inner shell, like a, like in an endophyte, um, is allowed to go inside of the mycorrhizae and be transported wherever. So, and saprobes too. So, I mean, this is this is like you know, crazy shit that if you think about, oh, well, what species is it? And you talked about the evolutionary level, it's gone to a truffle form now. And now you're talking about horizontal gene transfer where, where two individual cells come together. This cell got flown in on a bird and dropped in its poop. And now it's in a new environment and it doesn't know you know, how to survive as well as the local ones. And so they come together and they say, ah, I got this tool. What kind of tools you got? And they trade. And, and that changes their ability to withstand changes in the environment. Um, you name it or, or drive an evolutionary chain. 
So I mean, I don't know if you've you've caught up on all that shit, but it's it's they're getting fucking crazy with this information. Bob, anything? Jeez. I just I, I David, you're you're such a easy interviewer. Uh, you just you know ask. You don't even have to ask a question, and and, and you're gone. It's amazing. Um, but I, I mean, I, I want to take it to a different tangent. So I, I'm not sure if Layton's finished or not. I was gonna... <laughs> I'm good. Well, and I'm sure, it, you know, David, with all your answers, you're incredibly holistic, right? So whatever question I ask, I'm sure it'll come back and, and we'll revisit a lot of these things. Um, but but I want to I, I want to um, dive a little bit deeper into your your uh, commercial cultivation and, and then perhaps even get into talking about some of your favorite species. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's just interesting because coming out of cannabis where we're just always amazed at, at this cannabinoid can do this and, and, and this, this cannabinoid, this newly found cannabinoid is doing this and so on and so forth. And, and we, and we go back and we, we often say that, yeah, we've been using cannabis as, as medicine for, you know, so many thousands of years. Well, I think mushrooms predate all of this as well. Right. And, mm -hmm. And, uh, and we're just scratching the surface of what uh, some of these compounds are doing in mushrooms. So perhaps even sharing some of your ideas about what are some of the medicinal benefits that you're seeing in, in both uh, um, you know, gourmet or, or medicinal mushrooms and, and, and perhaps, um, I, I guess, speaking a little bit more about some of your more favorite ones that you're, you're growing right now. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, mycology is one of those things. Once you get into it, you're just like, I'm going to grow everything and do everything and find everything. Uh, so yeah, I've, I've done a lot of experimenting, you know, I think your question about like, um, how long they've been around, I think cultivating plants is like 10 or 12,000 years and cultivating mushrooms just over 2000 years. Um, but I think, our intervention and interaction with them is like ancient, like goes back to like the archaic days, right? All the way to like panspermia where they're like, you know, the spore can land on the comet and hit earth and like, you know, essentially start to colonize earth. I think NASA did a small project where they created an artificial meteor, inoculated it with different spores, released it in the vacuum of space, brought it back in, um, and they were able to scrape the spores and make them viable. I've said this a few times before, but you know, that just goes to show that, yeah, I mean, the idea that a comet crashed with some spores, some mycorrhizal spores, they started mining the minerals on earth, right? Started going at it and mining the minerals before there was any kind of plant life. We have to think like way, way back, right? And so uh, in these estuaries where the freshwater and the saltwater meet, you have all this crazy organic life and just so much going on. And you have microorganisms and bacterias and like all these different things. Right. And eventually those water, water has been here before any of it, maybe some minerals and some dirt before it was a soil. Right. And then that maybe those, those building blocks came on that comet and all of a sudden, right. You know, now these, these mycorrhizals are meeting these algaes and these lichens and these 
cyanobacterias and different things. Well, these cyanobacterias at that point, right? And then the fungi and the cyanobacteria meet and they become a lichen or an algae, right? Then we get these like non-vascular plants on earth, probably. This is all just theory that I heard and put together in my own fashion, right? And so then we get these non-vascular things like liverworts and ferns and things start showing up, right? And, and we get this giant thing called prototaxides, if you haven't heard of it. Prototaxides is this gigantic mushroom things that have roamed the earth at one point. And there's, there's lots and lots of research since 2014. There was only one dissertation on it. But now they're like, you know, is it algae? Is it algae? Is it lichen? Is it? is it mushroom a lot of people lead towards like that com combination symbiosis of this giant mushroom organism right and so like yeah we as humans have been interacting with them for a really 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 long time you look at otzi or otzi the Iceman. there's a whole there's a whole thing about him right there like he's found in the swiss alps down a couple mushrooms on him uh Amadou mushroom or the foamy foamy topsis that's one of my favorite mushrooms you can't I, i've never cultivated or tried to cultivate it but it just has a, a general amazing application to be a textile to be a tinder conch to be uh, antiseptic antifungal when you use it as a medicinal tea so it's it's one of those holistic mushrooms right it doesn't just have its purpose people are like well, which magic which mushrooms the most i think they're all magic right so you know you look at i have over here i got the herba medica and the materia medica like ancient chinese medicine a lot of these mushrooms have been in there for a long time right we just in the western world we have the mycophobia and so we get like oh you know mushrooms, they're all gonna kill us we're all gonna die and uh, not to go on too many tangents right but they find Otsi, they find this red lady, they find all these different people, the red lady of Miron, you can look her up in Spain, they found her buried in a super ceremonial way, and in her teeth they find Agaricus, and then they find Boletus. Usually people only Boletes, you know, Porcini, it's a very popular edible mushroom, so she was probably eating that for edibility, but Agaricus, there's a lot of medicinal Agaricus, so possibly she was using those. On Otsi they found uh, also the birch polypore, I can't remember this the Latin name right now, but the, they use that for intestinal parasites, right? And there's other other things like that. The the tinder conch, the Amadou mushroom I was telling you about, uh, you used to be given a task when in these nomadic tribes back in the day, and as the fire bearer, you would take the ember and you'd put it inside this mushroom. And the Amadou was real flammable, so you put it in there, you put it on your belt, and that was your job. You had to carry this ember to the next destination, right? And so beer you look at beer you look at all our novel compounds right yeah chaga chaga is another really great one um there's tons of medicinal ones right but you you uh you look over time at our interaction and we think that like oh we understand them but you know they found fossil evidence and chitin in a fossil over two billion years old right so mushrooms have possibly been here for two possibly since the dawn of time right mining them the minerals before the plants were able to make their jump out of the water and and coexist with these fungal Oh, did we just lose him? David? Oh, nope. I think David just froze up, guys. So you guys take over and I'll send him a text. Let him know. Oops. <laughs> hey, come on. You come on. 
So that was a good question, Av. I like that. What was his favorite? Um, he hadn't quite finished yet, so we'll have to, I guess, move on to something else. Is is that something that you're working with up up north, Av? Are you growing with mushrooms or teaching about them? You're on mute. Yeah, I've got a couple of projects going on. Uh, one is is um, you know looking at lion's mane in particular, and and looking at uh, um, some of the some of the neurodevelopment um, uh, compounds within lion's mane, and and just uh, some preliminary trials so far have have shown that in mice, uh, just using erasine er, 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 A. Or B, I can't remember which one, which of the medicinal compounds that alliance made, but it's it's showing some remarkable regeneration of neural networks. So um, um, I, I don't know if, if 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 are you consuming many of these medicinal mushrooms? But Do you, you guys know, for a quick second there, the snow just came out of nowhere. But uh, yeah, I heard the Aranacean question, but yeah. Uh, Definitely Aranaceans. I try to take as many mushrooms as possible. My friend William had more of a theory that like eating eating fresh mushrooms is the best way to get the most medicinal compound. And I kind of took my own took my own theories on that too. That like you know I'm not a biology expert and I don't understand. But you know people say oh you got to have alcohol extraction, you got to have water extraction. Um, and you know i don't know if anybody really knows because a lot of the, the the big research takes money and then when you find a cure they don't want anybody to have any of those and so a lot of the research for this stuff is very very new but i definitely think that you know as a human we're encoded biologically to process whatever good stuff this has right you might need to cook it and use use some heat to break down some of the chitin to make it a little bit more bioavailable. But I think by just adding a little heat and making it bioavailable, our body, our body can process those alcohol soluble and those water soluble compounds. Again, I'm not a scientist, so don't quote me on that. But, you know, I think, I think we're pretty, we're pretty loaded with how to receive these medicinal compounds. And so, yeah, I mean, lion's mane, I'll go into some of my faves is, uh, one of my favorites, but yeah, if you have something to say. Is it, is, is it also a, a favorite to grow? Because it, it, it grows, in my opinion, relatively easily and so well. Yeah, lion's mane, you know, it might look like a harder mushroom. I say it's a, a beginner mushroom up there with behind oysters. Some might even say it's uh, easier than oysters. They just grow so fast. You know, they're, they're prone to fruiting in a petri dish. They're prone to fruiting in vitro on a grain jar. It's really hard to keep up with the lion's mane mycelium. They really just want to grow, grow, grow in there. And, you know, if you find that mushroom in the wild on a tree, you could find a 10 pound specimen and take that home and eat for, you know, the whole, the whole week. So that's a pretty good find if you find a big mushroom like that. But yeah, these mushrooms contain such unique enzymes and compounds that are not found i think in you know sometimes in any other organisms in, in, on the planet right like the aranacean that you spoke of like heresium has aranacean a and aranacean b with tons of neuro regenerative properties like you mentioned but i don't think there's any other organism on the planet that produces that right and so 
you think about like the shiitake. I just I just heard it. I forget the name of the acid that it produces. It's anna something acid. And uh, a lot of people think that that's responsible for the, you know, the the fifth flavor, the umami flavor, right? Is the acid that's the abutanic, African, I don't know the name of it. Somebody just told me today, but I mean, the, if you look at the shiitake itself, it's like producing, they say, all the beneficial amino acids. And it's the only organism on the planet to produce all those beneficial amino acids, right? I mean, cordyceps, um, cordyceps, is you know producing cortisepin which is a pretty much an adrenaline analog right if you overlay the adrenaline analog right and so like going into these ophiocordyceps or cordyceps uh you know they're uh they're doing crazy things for horticulture because they are a entopathogenic fungi and entopathogenic fungi targets usually a host bug right and infects the endocrine i think in the in the endocrine system and another system in the bug's body eventually mummifying it taking it over and usually fruiting a mushroom out of the head uh doing all kinds of different things right but it's like so we have this invasive red lace moth come into the east coast a few years ago maybe five years ago right it came in the whole east coast started destroying all these grapevines right and and here's the fda and they say oh we got this phallic solution that you can spray and it's 300 a tree it might kill the entire ecology in the soil. It might kill all the microorganisms in this entire environment and your tree might survive. And it's $300 per tree. And if you have like hundreds of acres, like what are you supposed to, how are you supposed to apply this to your system, right? Where there's like a entopathogenic fungi that shows up in one of these mycologists farm that I know, right? And now he's able to take that cultured on a Petri dish. He can infect a host bug. And this is a host specific right it's a parasitic response to a parasite dare we use the word again right but it's like this parasite comes in and nature's response is to create a parasite to attack that and host specific safe enough to spray in your own mouth and you know you infect these host bugs they go back to the colony and everything's disrupted right so like these enzymes and these compounds that are found in these fungi are like just just uh, amazing things that we have so little light on you know i think the whole i think the neurologist who discovered the potential uh with the lion's mane was barely in the 90s you know and not not to say that we don't have the information maybe it's just being like uh given back to us or was hidden for a while and the mushrooms were kind of just like no we've been here we're here we're gonna we're going to keep being here, right? And it's like the, the overall mega science that we barely are starting to understand because there's so many other sciences that really could relate to it. Again, it's that whole system of everything coming together, right? It's like another thing I'm going to tell you guys is a really crazy philosophy of mine. Maybe somebody's out there doing it. Maybe somebody's not doing it. Maybe you guys can lead me in the direction of somebody who is doing it and like get some really cool stuff going with them. And so like, I've been having these really interesting theories, like my really good friend Julian and another another person uh, talked to me about it today is like terpenes, right? Like we've been doing a lot of research in terpenes since the cannabis industry came up. And a terpene, as far as I understand, it, is an aromatic compound produced by some sort of organism. I think we've always considered it plant organism up to this point, right? 
And, and so like, I'm like, oh, okay, right. You know, I'm trying to understand what a terpene is. I'm trying. And then like, I thought for a long time, terpenes only came from cannabis. And then I'm like, oh, okay, no, you know, terpenes come from lemon oil. There's all these different ones, beta carotene and all these different ones. And so I'm like, okay, if these other organisms are producing terpenes, why aren't we like looking at mushrooms and fungi for terpenes? These are some like my olfactory is a very sensitive thing. It's one of my wonderful portals that I get to use. Sometimes I didn't have the best relationship with it, but now I'm running a really great relationship. You look at a truffle, it's one of the most aromatic compounds on the planet, right? It's its job is to literally create aromatic compounds to get other organisms to come digest it and spread its biology throughout the forest, right? It's like, why are we not looking at these? And I observed it, right? My second nature when I'm out mushroom hunting, besides pick it up and look at it, is to smell it, right? And these mushrooms are producing some of the most intense aromatic compounds that I've ever smelled in my entire life, a foliota species, right? For example, it's this really crazy garlic smell. And like, some people don't smell it, some people do smell it. There's these little polypores that are producing this like lavender smell. It's like a lavender cookie that I just want to live in. One of the best smells ever. And it's like, why aren't we trying to measure and quantify the terpenes in these things. And then I start talking to my friends, just trying to be a little secretive about it, try not to spread the information too far because I want to like do some research and get somewhere with it. But like, fuck that, right? Like why everybody needs to be doing this. If you have the resources to do this, do it, start doing it, share with me. Let me know what you got going on because I think that like, you know, the entourage effect is what I just learned about, right? It's like, if you guys don't know, I'm sure both of you know the entourage effect, right? But it's like using terpenes with cannabinoids to create a, a super awesome effect. And my friend Julian really turned me on to it. But this other guy really made it a simple way to understand. So we like, I've been a, a cannabis user my entire life since 13 years old. And uh, yeah, I love cannabis. But, you know, like cannabis is like the bus, right? It's driving us to where we go. And these terpenes, these terpenes are like the side road, man. They're the side road to get you to your destination, right? You can ride that bus all day long, but if you can get on these side roads and really reach what destination you're trying to do and pair with it, you can have some really amazing effects, not only in like your own mind and what you're trying to do for your own temple, but like in the, we could put these applications into the medical field, right? It's like, I heard from Ken earlier, Oh, it's the hidden alum. Thanks. Thanks, Julian. That's my buddy. He's tuning in. We do a lot of cool work together. Uh, he's helping me organize the festival, right? But hidden alum is this really amazing smelling one, right? And so I even observed it in my own growing room as soon as I recently just trained substrates, right? It's like I've been growing oysters for a really long time. Um, and they smell and each species has its own kind of smell to it right but i changed the substrate up to where it was like growing with this alfalfa and these beet pellets and i was in the grow room and maybe it was because of the cold and the environment and then it was like just really excreting some really intense smells and i'm gonna call them terpenes you know, you know don't 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 quote me but i want to call them this fucking thing was pushing out some interesting terpenes that i had never smelled from it because i'd never grown with that substrate and then all of a sudden i'm like really smell and i get the guy who's working with me in the biology and the lab and stuff and i'm like mac do you smell this and he's like well i smell something and then i'm like do you smell alfalfa and he's like whoa i smell alfalfa like fuck and then I'm like, yo, so can we start pairing with these organisms and feeding them certain substrates to get different like 
terpene content and like now how does like environmental like obviously in the cannabis industry all those things play a very important role in the terpene right when the weed turns purple we get different terpenes and stuff so it's like how are we not applying this to the mushrooms right i don't know if you've ever smelled shiitake mushrooms but they got a certain smell to them, right? And it's like stink horns. Like, what the fuck? One of the stinkiest things you could probably smell on this planet. If you've never smelled one, whoo, good luck, right? Some of these, like, truffles, like I said, you know? And so it's like, I really want to start, like, isolating some of these some of these terpenes in the mushrooms and then creating some entourage effect in the medicinal world, talking about, like, how I want to apply it medicinally. That's like one of the effects I have, you know, I think it's the full body medicine. Like how do we, how do we isolate some of those terpenes and then eat them with our lion's mane to have like the most restful sleep and neuroregenerative REM sleep of our life by like isolating part of this reishi that's going to allow like awesome blood flow. But we like get some of that terpene then we stack it with the lion's mane mushroom that we ate for dinner and then all of a sudden we're like in perfect REM sleep for five hours and then we get up and we're functioning you know it's like I think that this would be like a something that more people need to so if you want to like team up with me I'm just like getting this citizen science lab going and like anybody in the cannabis industry that has a way to like uh, quantify and register these or can like point me in the direction of a lab because you know writing with a lab and doing a grant and like that's all great and i have the resources but that's going to take me a shitload of time if there's like somebody doing it right now in the cannabis industry for other shit like yo call me up i'll send you all kinds of mushrooms right now fresh and we'll start like doing some really cool shit and like i think everybody should be doing it and that's why i wanted to talk about it today because i think i did a little bit of back-end research and like looked through all the publications and stuff and there's like very very little research they've identified some 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 terpenes in in mushrooms but the research is not there yet so anyway all right we're gonna take a 33 second break and guys and we're gonna show you who's coming up next week so dave if you got to go for a quick peek go ahead we got 33 seconds we're back um yeah you know i think the, the i think you're correct david that they should be classified as terpenes um but you can always say volatile organic compound fuck because that's another way another expression for um odor that comes off as a result of oxidization or exposure to sunlight um and yeah in, in a lot of ways medicinal you know especially uh you know, Eastern medicine, they've been using, um, you know, aromatherapy for thousands of years, you know, so you're, you're, you're spot on what you're, you know, you're talking about. Ab, did you want to add something to that? No, I was, you know, I had, I had all these questions around the entourage effect and the fact that, uh, uh, you know, David's all about a whole body medicine, um, you know, a, a whole 
natural extract, full spectrum extract, which, which is, and it's because I, I was thinking that, that you, you, you wanted those terpenes, right? The terpenes that are in, in fungi and you wanted those with whatever, um, other medicine was, was in that. And so I, I thought that's what you're, were thinking. And so I think that was bang on. I, I, am a big fan of, of thinking that way in terms of, of, uh, you know, not trying to isolate a particular, uh, molecule out, out of out of these mushrooms but but allow it as you said like a citizen's scientist but citizen medicine as well so what we can be able to to cultivate our own medicine um from from these from these natural uh plants and fungi and stuff so i i thought that was you know perfect phenomenal with that and 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 yeah terpenes the way i look at them is is i think it's uh i read somewhere it's the most common language on earth right because or it's a most popular language on earth because bacteria use that to communicate with plants, with fungi, with other bacteria. And I imagine other, other, uh, uh microbes in, in the soil are, are using terpenes as, as their communication tool. So. I think they, I think they call it chemotaxis where mm -hmm. one smells the other. Um, there's some really interesting stuff done on, um, how a spore, uh, whether it's mycorrhizae or saprophytic, can find its host or find where it wants to go. Where, where is the where is the source of my lignin or where's the source of my host plant? And they use that, the plant's excreting uh, an odor or a smell, a chemo, and the a fungi is following it. And I mean, because think about like a spore hatching or, or coming out, sending out a schmoo in the soil three-dimensionally you don't know where the hell you are <laughs> but it's nature's proven that it can find the direction it needs to go um and and have enough energy like it won't release it won't come out of that spore until it knows it'll have enough energy to reach the next source so yeah really really cool stuff on 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 the understanding of chemical signaling and electrical signaling too um and ab this was a question i was dying to ask you have you played around um, with exposing the cannabis plant? Say you have a cherry pie uh, cultivar um, and then using cherry tree shavings and leaves to encourage and, and, and get a greater expression of the cherry uh, terpene and flavors. Yeah, I think, you know, that's something that uh, I hear, uh, you know, Kyle Cushman did, right? Um, Trying to get some more strawberry flavor and strawberry cough or more blueberry into blueberry dream i'm not i'm not specific about that um no i've, I've never played around with using uh i was i was interested about the whole alfalfa i've never been that used that direction but definitely using microbes to enhance terpene uh synthesis right or or a particular um we did play a little bit with uh jasmonic acid to try to increase um, responses through the um, uh, jasmonic acid pathway to increase cannabinoid synthesis, but um, uh, that that's that's about as much playing around I've done with that. Uh, but I I would I would see that it does make sense um, if those bacteria give give uh, strawberries some of their flavor um, in, in in that terpene production. Why not? Uh, increase that and and so by by adding those bacteria that you might get from a strawberry field to to that area 
or that might be present within the strawberry. And 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 I think you know when we think about UK cheese, right? UK cheese, it's it's a it's a one particular terpene that kind of does. It's a very non-dominant terpene. So if you did a terpene profile on UK cheese, it's it's like very low down uh, within that terpene profile that actually has the strongest cheese flavor, right? I I would be interested. I mean, it's 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 a great experiment. Use more of that bacteria to see if you get a cheesier flavor. That's I think that's what you experienced, David, recently, was that the, the mushroom had pulled up, uh, whether it's the chemistry, the biology, or whatever, out of your substrate and, and released it when you when you were present in the room. So, uh, again, this is, this is like just another example of, of you know, taking advantage of um, nature's own processes to, to better enhance what we're looking to do. So keep playing with that shit, David. For by all means, yeah. But you know what's what's interesting with fungi is that because it's such a great bioremediator, you can put it on on substances or grown in substances that are uh, perhaps toxic, and yet yet the spore or the the the, the fruit does not contain any of that toxicity, right? Well, so, okay, so me and my friend William were talking about this a couple years ago, and I think that, like, I don't know, it's hard to say, so it's like, you know, you grow a cannabis plant, and you clone it, and then you clone it, and eventually it starts to lose its, like, genetic diversity, so they say, some people say, well, you, can, you when you keep cloning, you make it a more stable clone, but I think that depends on, like, if you're growing indoor, I think there's all a whole bunch of different factors to it, right, and so... As far as like the mushroom goes, uh, I was trying to like do these projects outside and like grow these really drought resistant, cold resistant strains and then put them on agar and then try to put them in 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 the in the in the fruiting room. But I, I noticed a lot with, with psilocybe. Psilocybe have this really good ability to come up with like a. a a cure for any kind of bacteria that's in there and i feel like in those enzymes there's a lot of a lot of information and the mushrooms creating that enzyme to feed it to itself so it can create a resistance and so me and my friend got in this argument about like okay well i'm going to create these really harsh environments and then i'm going to clone the tissue afterwards and i'm going to put that on agar and it's going to have and he said, well, no, the biology is not going to be there. You're going to want to collect the spores and then you're going to want to want to grow the spores out. And then you're going to have the genetic diversity in the spore. But like growing with so many different plants and cactus and different organisms, I think environmental stressors can definitely change the genetic makeup of an organism in my own personal in my own personal experience, especially like with cactus, maybe not as much in the plant world that I've noticed. But I think very much so with mushrooms. I think mushrooms are definitely communicating to themselves in a way. And plants, I think everything has its own ability to do it. But it's like, I grow a lot of Trichocerus cactus. And, and, I, and the clone comes from the mother. But it's more like a tree relationship, right? Like where that clone comes with the ability from its mother. Like the mother's like, here, I'm passing you all the stress I've had for the last 20 years in this environment, and you're going to grow knowing encoded. And that's just a clone, right? That didn't have to come from the seed. And I feel very strongly about that with cactus, that environmentals, because I've made high mountains, 
South American cactus live in a greenhouse where right now I'm looking at like three inches of snow that just fell since we've been on this talk outside. And they're in a greenhouse by two pieces of plastic and a very small heater that goes down to 32 degrees. Now that's not ideal for those cactus. And maybe I've lost a couple hundred that I didn't want to lose in experimenting that I've grown from seed and not from seed. And it's not growing from seed even, you know, we'll find out this year because I'll full, fully close the cycle because I collected seeds of some that grew, that flowered in this environment. And I'll, I'll seed those and then I'll grow those and see where, like, where they play along, along the spectrum. But, um, you know, I feel like mushrooms are kind of the same as the cactus, right? They're, they're getting that, that environmental stressor genetically encoded in them for them to survive because you can clone it and clone it and clone it. And I've seen it a lot in psilocybe growing and like the diversity. A lot of people like create these great canopies and their grows and stuff, but there's no genetic diversity, right? And for me, the magic of mushroom is like picking the small mushroom or the big mushroom. And that small mushroom's got packing more than that big motherfucker, right? It's like, it's like cannabis uh, percentage testing to me. They're like, well, we tested two buds on 15 of these plants and it's a consistent 70% or 20%. And you're like, no, motherfucker, the top to the bottom is going to have like a, a range of at least 10 to 15%. You would think if you like had a little bit of a, like a logical approach is like what's happening in the plant. And so I don't think that seeds are the only way. I don't think the spores have like all of the answer, but I think like if I wanted that terrestrial species to grow again i need it to sporulate in the environment and drop spores in the environment and then work with the saprobe mycorrhizal double relationship like you were talking about that they're encoded with already all those local fungi might have been waiting for a saprobe to come in there and activate it and be like boom here we are now we're gonna grow yeah i'm interested in collecting the spores and like seeing what the potential of the spores has to do but i'm also collecting that mycelium to see how it's like genetically adapted to its environment and survive and bringing it back into the fruiting room i'm interested in creating contamination in certain projects of not in my whole fruiting room but in some of my fruiting projects so i can see how the mycelium behaves when there is like a, a viral infection that comes in and then can i isolate that enzyme take that enzyme introduce it into the water that i'm hydrating my bag with now i'm genetically coating the mycelium with an enzyme that's like giving it a precursor to digest or build up we won't say like a resistance but we'll say like a resilience to some of these biological factors that we experience in a grow room, whether it's clean or not, right? Like how can we introduce those into that mycelium and then train that mycelium? It's like, cause I've seen it where they trained mycelium to eat cigarette butts, right? And they didn't use new spores every time they used the same mycelium and they, they started reintroducing the plastics on the Petri dish a little bit more at a time until eventually they just took the whole entire oyster mycelium that was on that petri dish and filled the whole sterilized bucket of cigarette butts peter mccoy did this with one of his buddies right and so like yeah environmental i think plays a, a a huge part in it and it doesn't always have to be passed on but i think the most answers are, are going to be co coded in the next like genetic sequence or uh, however that works but i definitely think the mycelium you could do a lot. And now that I have like access to this lab, like you got to understand 
uh, a lot of my approach to this was doing this low-tech open source. So I grew a mushroom farm for three years with no lab, no still airbox, no open open flow hood, none of that. I did it all in my kitchen, the dirtiest place in my house as far as like biology goes, right? A little bit of spray alcohol, a clean shower, and like good aseptic techniques. And I was able to do, you know, hundreds of pounds a week on my kitchen counter or on a table, not on my kitchen counter. It was on a table that I designated for it, you know? And so, oh, you know, uh, yeah, there's, there's just so much that we can observe. And like you said, late and just like observing nature in these systems, uh, in our, in our down blink of humanity that we get, if we're lucky to get 80, hundred years out of it. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, the answers are, are definitely all there if we're willing to just like tune in a little bit. It takes a little bit of extra focus, but there's so many different things happening that I wish I could answer all the questions for myself. But, you know, now I got I got time a little bit more. I got a little lab. I got getting some resources to do some really fun, cool stuff and learning more from experts like you. And now I'm just going to like follow both of your work forever, of course. And so it's like it's great to be a, be on today. And uh, somebody had a question about IMOs. Uh, I'll do my best. Oh, OK. Yeah. Um, you know, I would say reach out to my friend Ecological Projects on Instagram about that IMOKNF style. He's, uh, you know, when we met, he was already a fermenting master. And I was like, hey, have you ever heard of KNF? And he, of course, like knew everything about it, but didn't, you know, and then now he's like the wizard. He does it. He does it all. He's the fermenting guru, not just KNF, but he does Jadam and, and natural farming and uh, I'm lucky to have him around. He pushes me and inspires me to do a lot of really cool stuff. And uh, I got to go to see him talk about his uh, Jadam cool stuff. So, yeah, I mean, we're definitely going to try to build some boxes. And at our festival, we're, he's going to do a bunch of boat coffee and we're going to inoculate the waterways. And like, you know, uh, as far as IMOs, you know, I'm not an expert. I know very, very little bit about natural farming. Uh, of course, I think it'll all fold into itself eventually, but, you know, there's uh, definitely reach out to him and he can give you some good advice. So, so here's another one. Um, been doing a lot of work with uh, SMS, spent mushroom substrate coming out of L.A., and um, utilizing it in making compost to uh, get a better F to B ratio for uh, my clients and my own use. And <clears throat> interestingly enough, when the bags come in, there's often a yellow, yellowy liquid underneath them. Ha have you had any experience with that type of uh, leakage? So that's actually, you know, the metabolite or the enzyme I'm talking about, right? And so like coded in there is like, right? I don't think anybody's touched it. The first person I ever heard talk about it was my buddy Alex Dorr. And uh, I think I've also heard uh, somebody else talk about it, uh, Trad Cotter. Um, but yeah, those are enzymes, man. Those are like, there is some crazy biology going on right there. And like I said, you know, it's been in this grow room in this environment. And that's like, hey, I'm running out of food. I'm stressed out. I'm going to create this metabolite 
to try to keep myself alive a little bit longer. Uh, and then it's like, you know, produce this food. I don't really know, to be honest, but yeah, those are metabolites. Those are those enzymes I'm talking about that I'm observing when I'm growing like, you know, the psilocybes and I'm seeing these viral things come in and like mushrooms have this really intense, even I think Trad Cotter was putting two different myceliums next to each other on purpose on a Petri dish just to see what would happen at that cell wall. And they would create these really thick cell walls and then build up enzymes to like kind of create this fungal battle between each other. Right. And he even went as far as to grow specific. This is Trad Cotter. Uh, specific medicinal mushrooms and he created this special bag right and so he started ordering like h1n1 and all these different viruses yeast infections and all these things and you could actually fully colonize the bag right and then you could take one of these viral infections you could wipe it on the mycelium and again like i just described that mycelium is going to build this really crazy cell wall and then it's going to produce an enzyme. Now you isolate that enzyme and you can take that enzyme. And now uh, perhaps uh, you have an antibiotic that's specific to H1N1 virus, right? And so the potential for that could be we have these blocks on storage at the doctor's office. You go in with whatever infection you have in your throat, you get a throat swab, they wipe it on there. And now it's like, creating a, a dna specific antibody for you you know just by these medicinal mushrooms and he started testing it with all kinds of different medicinal mushrooms same guy who was doing the entopathomogenic fungi where he was creating like uh, pesticides that are safe enough to spray in your mouth that are targeting specific host bugs in these horticulture systems and uh yeah i mean mushrooms again just like yo let's let's keep pushing it but uh I don't know if I answered your question at all there. Well, you, you did. I mean, you 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 validated my own findings. Um, it was explained to me that that was a biocide. So when that when that fungus is being threatened or or not in the perfect environment, it excretes that enzyme to because it's in a weakened state to protect itself from something else coming in and taking it over. And in, in my experience in the work I did, I took some of that liquid and introduced it to a very uh, advanced biological uh, compost to see if I did get a reduction, and I definitely did. So um, it's it's really interesting because you're absolutely right as far as future medicine uh, is concerned to put these group of mushrooms together and have them build that wall with that biocide in between all of them you're going to get a more diverse biocide uh, that would be tailored to whatever it is that you're looking um, based on the genetics of each and one of those cultivars uh, to, to get, you know, a certain antiviral or antibacterial, you know, biocide it takes everything the fuck out. <laughs> yeah. So really cool. Yeah. So I, I, you know, there's probably a ton of research to be done there too. Like, you know, with soil biology and, and things like that and how do we introduce certain pathogens or like, even like it could be an above ground pathogen, right. That's like killing a crop and say we introduce it at like a mycorrhizal level and now it's producing this enzyme that we could take and replicate it at a large scale and start spraying it as a, as a foliar. And now this plant is building up a resistance to to that pathogen or that disease that's attacking it perhaps i don't know that just came out of me i don't know where that came from but i think that could be an implication that somebody should jump on 
Absolutely. Ab, you wanted to add something on that one? Yeah, I, 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 were you, were you both talking about like uh, quorum sensing? Is that? Well, that was where it goes. But what we were talking was actually about the excretion, this, this accumulation of uh, an enzyme, you know, a peptide, who knows what it really is to be determined. But it definitely, when these, when these fungi become stressed out, whether it's environmental issues or, or they're becoming weak and they're running out of food, um, they go into this uh, defensive mode where um, they excrete all of this biocide. And, and uh, uh, next time I get, oh, that's right. We don't get the mushrooms with the blocks uh, with the bags on them anymore. I was going to say next time I get one, I'll shoot you a picture of what it looks like. But it got to the point where I told the guys at the yard, I want you to run over every single block, bust the plastic so the biocide comes out because I don't want to put that biocide into my sure. biologically diverse compost because I'm, I'm going the wrong direction. I just want the spores that are coming out of the blocks. So, uh, yeah, it, it's really interesting stuff. But, yes, that's where it's going to lead for sure. Mm. What just jumping you? around again. If, if if you don't have a question, Leighton, I'm I'm I've got plenty for David here. So yeah, yeah, go go. Trying to be fair. <laughs> this one this one actually goes back to comments you made in in a conversation we had around um, mycorrhizae in in particular, uh, and and the fact that ones that you can commercially find viable or commercially available tend not to um, be overly viable. Uh, and I think you you. I hope I'm not publicly uh, putting you in a bad spot, but but you said that you did find one one out there that you really did like. Um, David, have you uh, had any success generating uh, mycorrhizae um, and and propagating them to to in a, in a, in a way of of um, being able to inoculate other species on your own farm um, by by uh, any, any method of, of propagating them. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I heard something, I don't know if the terminology is right, maybe they called it like rewilding or like wilding your property. Like when I first moved here 10 years ago, I was mower, like I mowed and I did tilling and I did all that stuff, right? Because that's how traditionally I was taught to think. And then I heard somebody say, you know, if you if you leave the biology undisturbed for five to seven years, the, the, the landscape will start to re, re-naturalize, I suppose, or go to its like native, you know, it's like when you drive out here in New Mexico, you know, there's lots of open fields. And if you drive for a while that hasn't been touched by anything, you know, it's like the pristine nature and you can just tell nature's doing its thing. Right. And so I, I try not to like mow and do any of that. Right. And try to increase as much of that. But, you know, there's interactions. I build things. I put greenhouses. And it's really funny to see the, the successions of, quote unquote, weeds or reparative mechanisms. We should start quoting them as. Right. It's like, again, it's like, oh, that human intervention. This is the succession that's going to grow and it's going to interact in this manner and in this way. Um, and so. I had a friend, uh, my buddy, William Wildcat, uh, he had taught a, a mycorrhizal similar inoculation thing. And a great way to do that is to just, you know, go, if you don't have property that is fruiting mushrooms abundantly, at least go 
you know, in your local, your local ecosystem, collect a bunch of mushrooms. This is the only time I would say collect as many different mushrooms as you, as you can think of. Um, and, and, uh, not do something as for far as like science or like preservation or trying to ID them. Everybody does it. Don't get me wrong. I was guilty of like, oh, I'm going to go ID 60 mushrooms today. And like, doesn't happen. But in this case, you know, especially if you're, you know, in a good rainy season and the mushrooms go out, pick 60, 60, 30 different species, take them all home, dry them out, try to get more mature specimens out of sporulated um dry them out and now you have billions and billions and billions of spores of native mycorrhizal species right you put them in a five gallon bucket you crush all that up all that biology up you fill it with water and you mix it around and now the spore dispersal wherever you're going you could probably do a topical foliar spray across the whole property you know for me i try to like think okay you know you can break it up even better you can go and say hey this is all growing with this ecology i'm going to harvest these and i'm going to take them to this part of this restoration project or this property that i want to increase indigenous uh mycorrhizals and you know you put all those together and you spray them around those trees you know and you squirt them around. that's a lot of spore dispersal right and like there's the five fungal needs. It's like the right substrate. It needs water. It needs fresh air. It needs a good food source, the right food source. And I always forget the fifth one every single time. But either way, right? Like all that spore has to do is land in that in that five condition. And like, you know, these mushrooms, like I said, that gill has like down that gill is tons and tons of basidia and on every single basidia there's three so there's millions and millions and millions of spores and you know mushrooms are good at making lots of them and only maybe one lands in the ideal condition you know you talked about like the ability for those spores to stay in in the mycelium itself like well somebody told me about like they were observing uh spores in the ocean and in these these fungal spores developed their own flagella and started swimming around the ocean man like a spore developed its own flagella and just started paddling around the ocean looking for compatibility like talk about like crazy shit that they have the ability to do and so uh yeah it's crazy mushrooms are awesome <laughs> Leighton, that kind of halfway sounds like what you were doing um with your reclamation project for uh, Roundup and that, where you would get the worst of the worst and then, you know, propagate uh, that in, uh, you know, for, for reclamation projects. Um, yeah, definitely. It, it's, it's similar. I, I'd never heard of a spore growing a flagellum. So that's, that's really interesting. Um, are you sure it wasn't an algae that, that, cause algaes tend to be mobile. And they can look like spores, uh, similar to like the flagellate, but that's that's wild, dude. I would say reach out to Alex Dorr of Mushroom Revival. He was the one. I, I don't mean to like get him on a spoiler. Maybe that was some like crazy research I wasn't supposed to share. <laughs> but like, yeah, he told me about it a few years in Telluride. It's, it's been about three years, so I think he's probably come 
come come with whatever he was going to do with it. But he told me, so I, I think it's fair to tell you guys about it. But I think it was a pretty cool mechanism. That it was definitely a fungal spore. He's a pretty, pretty, pretty up there mycologist. So I, I think he was he was onto something. It was, it's just a weird thing, you know. They're now finding fungi in like ocean and waterways, and you know. Oh, there's a tremendous amount of aquatic fungi. A tremendous amount. Fishbrew.com has. I don't know how many different um, cultivar, not cult, yeah, cultivars of of aquatic fungi, and you know, you start listening to uh, Doctor, not David White. I have a Doctor David White here, Doctor James White, who does the endophytic uh, biology, and he'll talk about how um, the you know the endophytic fungi will come out of the leaf and turn into a saprophytic fungi um, until that it's uh, reintroduced to a new plant. Um, and when that leaf, that, that dead leaf falls into water, um, that that fungus actually becomes an aquatic fungi. And in many ways, I truly believe that um, both the terrestrial and the aquatic environments are, are interactive, are, are part of the same system, and that the biology can adjust as necessary. Um, again, remember they 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 morph. I mean, they're they're quick life cycles, so they can they can change uh, or you know over a few generations make huge modifications. So um, yeah, and and another friend of mine is actually doing something similar to what you talked about using uh, spent mushroom substrate in in these giant cages and sinking them into these pools uh, from a lead mine to try to clean up the the lead. It's coming out of the water or coming out of the old mine and having tremendous successes with it. Um, he also did some work at a university where he introduced white rot fungi to atrazine. Atrazine is a horrible, horrible pesticide. Uh, has a very, very long uh, half-life. And they were actually able to, just with the fungi, break that atrazine into secondary and tertiary metablites. The only problem was those metabolites um, by themselves, yes, they've reduced the half-life, but they're still horribly toxic. So he called me and asked me to send him some of my product. And when they used both the white rot and with the you know highly intensive uh, biology, they were able to eliminate all of it um, in a very short period of time. So we know for sure that in combination, fungi and highly advanced biologicals will pretty much do anything as far as breaking compounds down. Now that hasn't been tried with the forever chemicals, but I know it's been tried with, I've done it with hydrocarbons, did it with atrazine, did it with Roundup. Um, so we know that they will work. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, again, finding the right constituents to do the work or shotgun it, put as many different diversity diverse organisms as you possibly can and let the one that's going to do it, do it. Um, but in the, in the roundup case, yeah, no, I went for specifically a horribly uh, exposed fields, uh, corn and beans, where they use just so much herbicide there. It's not funny. And I told Kyle to dig up some grass clods that were, had been exposed to this in a field that he knew was extremely dirty. And I took the grass clods and I separated the dirt from the root ball. The root ball went into the compost pile. Then I separated the liquid from the sand silt clay. So I had just a liquid 
applied that to the area that had been uh, treated pretty drastically with with Roundup. And now if you go outside, you can see the garden is thriving, whereas it was all dead. It was just it was just earth uh, when I got back. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of ways to use this stuff. And and again, you know, if you're mining, if you're using fungi to mine like chromium and then now you you, you can use the chromium that you got the fungi to pull out of the toxic place and you can use that to refine it and make uh make more chromium for for whatever you need and so uh and there's another woman down in mexico doing this using fungi to mine specific minerals um that are both rare and very hard to get to and and then using the fungi to break the fungi down uh and so that she got the minerals without exposing workers to horribly horrible conditions extreme heat toxic air you know they all got to be gassed up and you know it's it's crazy so the future is wide open dude wide open all right anybody want to add anything up oh, david you're on you're mute, david i was just gonna say to fully close the loop yeah just you know go out and collect those actual mushrooms because they do have that spore that you can you know, spread around your site and try to try to work with native stuff, you know, if you can. So you're not it's really hard to understand what's really going on in these complex, complex systems. But as far as like concentratingly uh, concentrating, definitely dig up native grasses and your, your chances of isolating the mycorrhizals in those. And then I haven't had a lot of experience with it, but I know cultivating native mycorrhizals isn't super hard if you can get the right grasses that are, you know, pairing with them. Uh, you know, you can always go to your your local museum of biology and they could probably tell you the endophytes that are pairing with certain grasses that you're trying to target. And then you can go to the museum. They'll literally show you where that grass is. It can tell you a site. You can go harvest some of those mycorrhizals put them in different containers with that native grass. And now you can, you know, feed it the right biology and increase, you know, production of it. And then you can har harvest the uh, mycorrhizals there for as far as like cannabis production for your own personal use. Uh, I definitely, you know, heard Leighton talking about a lot of that, that biology, that's the whole spectrum, right? That's going to grow the best plant. I've been into living soil for, for a while myself. So I definitely think, you know, your local environment is going to have the best ability to give you what you need to grow there the best i think and so yeah it's it's pretty replicable system there's a little bit more technology again you know look to peter mccoy's book uh, radical mycology has some arbuscular and all the em and all that uh, all that cultivation and how they're doing that stuff so hmm. Yeah. Seen lots of pawpaw mushrooms that have balloon mushroom spores. And if I put them in my worm bin, would that be a bad thing? Nah, puffballs are pretty much just a giant. Uh, I mean, I don't know if the mushrooms or if the. If the maybe inoculated afterwards, uh, you know, that would probably be a question better for Leighton as far as like the biology of how to inoculate your worm compost would be. I mean, if you were feeding the, the puffballs to your worms, I don't I don't think it'd be a bad thing. A, a great thing is spent mushroom blocks. If you do have a mushroom farmer, 
in the area mushroom again you know it's producing that compound all the way at the mycelial level it's super sweet smelling a lot of the time you know different species of mushrooms are have their own aroma at all levels but uh, worms are really attracted to that sweet smell and they like the they like to eat the mycelium you know so no i don't think you'd have a problem with the puff balls i mean as long as you want to grow mushrooms in your worm bin that's yeah. what's gonna happen. <laughs> Cold, dark, full of fucking food. Yeah, pretty much, and water. It's a pretty and much ideal place for mushrooms to grow. And the puffball is essentially just giant spore balls. So. Yeah, yeah. And you know what's funny is is Efren freaks out every time I find a a, a puffball, and I don't know why. I think that puffballs may be more mycorrhizae dominant in, in as a as a whole. Like if. If they're going to produce X amount of puffballs uh, versus um, actual mushrooms, I think that they generally produce more puffballs than they do mushrooms, whereas the saprobes are way more mushroom and very little puffballs. At least that's what I've been told. I don't know if that's fact or not. But, um, yeah, so if you got puffballs, that's a good thing. Ken, we're getting up there on time. Is there any other questions that were highlighted that you want to uh, – Actually, I've been trying to, to bring them up as uh, as people have been asking them. Um, but if anybody's got any questions, just uh, throw them in the chat. Yeah, we got 20 minutes left. So um, if uh, there's questions, guys, I'll bring them up. Yeah, was there something else you wanted to hit on, my friend? You said you had a bunch of questions. Jeez, uh, where am I? Where am I at now? Um. Turkey tail. Oh, sure. Got any? Got any good tips on turkey tail? I mean, a, a highly, a highly wide distributed mushroom. Where are you at in the world? In Canada too? Yeah, in Nova Scotia on the eastern Nova. coast. Oh, I'm sure that they're they're available. They're a super good winter mushroom too. They come out late in the fall. They come out early, early spring. They're... I was actually thinking of, of, of commercial cultivation of them. Have you have you tried doing any? <sighs> cultivation of those yeah could we we see the um we see the uh false I mean, turkey tail here at times and, and and the turkey tail it's such a it's such a like widely available in in the in the outdoors i i personally won't say that you shouldn't cultivate medicinal mushrooms but again it goes down to like my theory about like with psilocybe. So for example, like there's probably some psilocybe growers out there that are like, yeah, you know, and so like we're cloning this tissue, right? And then we're, we're recreating this mushroom over and over and over again, and they call it a canopy. So there's like hundreds, but it's the same exact mushroom over and over and over and over and over and over again. And so like in gourmets, it's not as bad, right? Cause you want to eat them and you get a taste. So if you get one that grows really nice and beautiful, you don't mind recreating that a hundred times and people eating it. But for me, like my personal philosophy is like, if you're, if you're provide, if you're like, if you're going for the medicinal compound, I think that environmental factor is going to play a huge role. So if you're, if you're, using it to create a medicinal product i would say grow multiple strains of it in different environments so you have a little bit of diversity and you're not grow, you know the same 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 you know um turkey tail i just saw somebody doing it 
commercially, I've never like I've never really had luck. It takes a really long time to fruit. It takes a really long time to colonize. And again, you know, it's out it's out there a lot. You, you could find it a lot probably in your area. Um, so the input, it might not be worth it. Like if you're somewhere in the world where turkey tail doesn't grow, I would say definitely give it your all. And like uh, you could probably create some really amazing fruits and stuff. But again, it's like, what is, what's the, what's the end all goal, right? I mean, it's not a huge, good food source. And when you're making medicines, you don't necessarily need it at a scale like that. I know there's like a, a lot of people, I guess, like, again, you know, it's just your, your end all goal, right? Um, you don't want to, I don't, I don't eat turkey tail, but it, apparently you should eat turkey tail because it has tons of fiber in them i've found out recently i don't know how true it is i try to keep trying to find this medical paper this guy's telling me about but i am not having luck finding the the, the evidence that turkey tail has tons of fiber but if you've ever ground David, it, it, is turkey tail a polypole so it grows on living trees it's a polyper it's a saprophytic polyper so it grows on dead and decaying trees usually like oak but i've seen it growing even i think on pine here you know like a doug fir so it's well, not my, as, not as not a picky mushroom at all and in, in all up and down the california coast i imagine Anywhere there's humidity, that mushroom will grow. Even here, this lady showed me a stump this year that I didn't think it grew. So I was fascinated. Again, you know, you want to grow the medicinals, make some medicine and do cool stuff with it. But I would say you're if you don't have time to, like, go out, definitely work with, like, a local forager. You know, again, you're going to get the most diversity if you're, like, going for a medicinal project product which most people are uh like i heard people talking about mushrooms and cannabis like that's going to be a whole new thing you know see this lady says it grows even on her willow tree so tramites is a very very widely distributed mushroom and so um i don't know i wouldn't say i'm not trying to discourage you it just takes a lot of input for not as not as good an output when you could like go run around or like say hey i'll give you this much money for your wild foraged ones and if there's if there becomes like you know bureaucracy involved that you have to have clean facilities and stuff then find a really good uh cultivar local maybe try to get it to somebody that does like me and i could put it on petri dish and then that way you could just go get some like wood that's growing locally and then we can just inoculate that wood and then you can just set it up on your farm and grow it in a less passive way right so you're not putting in you know they grow really easily right so you can go find that local adapted species see exactly what the wood and now you have an abundance of this wood like for me we don't get art we don't have oak down here right but we got tons of aspen we got tons of pine so i need to go find these pine loving oysters and start growing them so i'm not taking all these extra resources to create something that I could set up in a more natural system, right? In a, in a, in a centropic way. So we're not taking as much, right? It's the idea of beyond organic. You're creating soil as you're taking from the soil. Yeah. I, I think, I think uh, bringing it into a, a permaculture principle and perhaps taking some turkey tail spore and being able to cultivate it in your own backyard would be phenomenal. I, I tend to worry more that 
us as humans, once we find something it might be health, healthful or helpful, that uh, we tend to overforage, and and then we start losing some of the uh, diversity within within a, a natural. <laughs> yeah, uh, we just we have a tendency of of destroying habitats, and and so not mm. that not that I would want to see a lot of uh, resources put towards it, but if if we uh, if we start finding out the benefits of of some of these mushrooms in nature, sure. we may we may over over consume over over harvest well that's a that's a very valid point uh yeah. because there has been a lot of that um in the uh the northeast kingdom in vermont mm. where um they've now started to prevent people from harvesting Whoa. uh chaga especially especially chaga because that one takes forever to get going sure. um and the turkey tail because both of them have legitimate cancer uh fighting properties uh, my my beloved pauline was was on both of them um, it's, it's kind of cool that we have uh dragonfly on um, next week because they make a mushroom caplet that was part of pauline's regiment um, that has both the turkey tail the chaga i think it's got reishi it's got a bunch of different mushrooms in it so there's definitely some real value as far as medicinally i don't know about the fiber uh that i did not hear anything Sure. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot left to learn about these guys, for sure. Yeah, and so I agree with you, you know, overforaging and, you know, that just becomes, again, I think educational platforms, you know, somebody was knocking on somebody, you know, it's like, oh, you're going to lead foraging classes. That's bad. I think, no, I think ethics and like direction. Because again, you know, understanding the complexity of the system and saying that our intervention yeah, maybe like going and tromping around the forest with 50 people and like machinery and stuff is definitely not a great way. But like if you can align with somebody who has a good ethics when they're foraging, you know, it's it's a hard it's a hard it's a hard subject to say. But I think the more people that are informed, you know, like it's like don't take more than you need for the year, you know, and like if you if, if people can respect that and we can have that reciprocal relationship with nature or even ask nature before you take you know like don't just go taking things because you heard about it on a podcast and that you know somebody said you should go forage your own mushrooms yeah i mean it, there's a whole there's a whole bucket to unravel but it's like you know a lot of people have this like controversy in foraging especially with like gourmet mushrooms that like oh you know you gotta pluck versus pull or you gotta and and to me it's like again like we don't even quantify the understanding of this mycorrhizal system the reason that it didn't come maybe two years after is not because a bunch of people picked it those mushrooms are going to come and go and the amount that come and go that we don't see like i've taken people out one day and the next day and walked by the same place five times and not seen the mushroom and then all of a sudden i see the mushroom you know it's just like to to say that you know our intervention is like playing uh, you know it can go both ways right it's a double-edged sword but like for me in my own personal experience i think the more people that are interacting with and engaging with it at, at, a, at a higher frequency right or like that that forest bathing like getting more people off of the ai screens and into like situations like this is, there needs to be an educational platform based around it and, and there needs to be information on it so people aren't 
doing things like that. And we're not worried about chasing a dollar when it comes to like a cure. And it's like, you know, and so it's just, it's a, it's a really tough subject, but I, I, I see it always. And I, I, you know, it's, it sucks that we're like, Oh, all of a sudden, you know, Turkey tail has these beneficial properties and now we're going to, but it's like, you know, those Turkey tails are doing something in the ecosystem and they're, they're making them to me, they're fruiting because they want us to interact with them, you know, and they want us to pick them and they want us to take them and like, is taking them not like also like spreading their spores maybe a little bit more and like i don't know you know it, it, it does suck if you go in there with like machinery with no respect to mother nature and you fuck yeah that's gonna fuck any ecosystem up i believe um but like even you know i've led large groups and i don't say everybody should know but it's like there's so much like you know it's like my secret spots i'm like ah do i really want to take these people here and it's like we all just left with a huge fucking basket and the forest is just pumping them out every day, you know? So it's like, it's hard to understand, right? It's like the pluck versus pull. People are like, you need to pull the mushroom. And then people are like, no, when you pull the mushroom, destroy the mycelial connection of the mushroom. And it's like, well, you got to chop, chop it and leave it. So it's like, and my thing, I look at people and I'm like, well, when you're harvesting an apple from a tree, do you pull the fucking apple off or do you chop the apple off? Me personally, I pull the apple off because I want the whole piece of fruit, right? I don't chop it and leave a little bit. And it sucks because people that chop mushrooms, no offense to people who chop their mushrooms, but I'll go back the next day and I'll be like, yeah, mushroom. And it's like, oh, this is the part of the mycelium that you left here that you chopped and it tried to grow, but its body was, half of its body's gone, but it's still unfolded its mycelial network you know so like i don't know you know there's all kinds of like theories and double-edged swords to this thing but yeah i think that the more people in my eyes that are interacting with nature in a holistic way i think uh, one step closer to the solution right but um maybe that's a good segue into uh talking about the southwest fungi fest and what you're doing there and also with uh your um your lab that you're putting together sure yeah totally thanks ken um sure yeah creating that educational platform you know it's it's been an interesting ride so far i think 34 years of gathering information i have a lot to share with people and i want everybody in my region the southwest specifically we don't get a lot of like we don't get a lot of highlights of like what's actually happening here and there's some amazing brilliant people that i've got to interact with on this planet in this local region it's the southwest funga fest because it's not just new mexico although i've been here my whole life and it's going to be here this year um it's in northern New Mexico, which is, you know, a, a pretty sacred gem to the rest of the world. And I've got a little bit of pull from some people. I went as far as to say I was trying to gentrify the communities of northern New Mexico and I was a white colonizer. It was it was the interesting social media. But really, all I'm trying to do is create community, create an education platform that allows people in this region access to this information that they might not be able to reach without buying a $300 plane ticket flying to the East Coast or the West Coast to a large conference and, and getting access to this information. Or, you know, the closest one is Telluride. And it's I've been going for 10 years and it's, it's getting pricey. You know, we're doing some really cool stuff 
we're, we're, we're not just encompassing mycology. Obviously, that's a huge push, but we're going to have our database collection site where any local farmer within the region, if they can't be here locally, they can mail it in and we're going to send it to the database and start creating, you know, a, a map of what's going on with the soil around this region. Um, we're going to have Alan Rockefeller doing microscopy and photo photos we're going to have local chefs doing mycology cook-offs we're going to the whole theme of the festival is fungal preservation so you know i've really been in the fungal preservation window for since i've been into mycology and finding my passion project while making money and doing all these things is fun so this is a good way to overall overarch it all i'll have a couple other organizations pair with me i've been the president of New Mexico Mycological Society. So I've not being an academic, I've been able to create a pretty good extensive network through academics by holding the title of president of the Mycological Society. And then people meet me and they're like, you fucking guy. And I'm like, hey, here I am, you know. And so we're trying to bring as many experts into the into the into this to this area we got ladies like rain grant who's the pre the president of the durango psychedelic society who's going to be bringing and she's also the owner of the colorado mushroom company and she's going to be bringing all her aspects of study um we got my friend down down in el paso mammalian mycology who's uh been providing access for veterans to this medicine and pairing with people all over California and Oregon to, to give veterans access to this sacred space that they need to create within themselves. We got like, he's also doing endophytic gene transfer research that he's going to be releasing to the public for the first time ever at the festival. That's like being funded by a really well-known institute. I don't know right now because he hasn't told me all the details, but he's going to be unleashing all that endophytic you know, gene transfer research that he's been doing. He's going to blow everybody's mind. And then we got like William Padilla Brown, who has been doing like RNA DNA stuff since the beginning. Dude taught himself how to sequence DNA in his basement when, during COVID when he was like 26 years old. Matt Powers is going to be there as well. We got Olga Sogas, hopefully from Smugtown Mushrooms. And then we got like 20 local highlighters, collaborators. We got soil experts from this area. We got food experts we got like and and best of all we got the spore source which is kids camp i got three kids i'm a dedicated father uh we got a conscious kitchen where we have a really interesting group that goes around to festivals they just did the austin uh music festival but you get two meals with your ticket price uh, all vegan gluten-free sourced by all local farms we're going to be empowering all these local farms. I started teaching kids about mushrooms with this nonprofit called Access. And so uh, I got a five-week little course I did with the kids. I'm going to be teaming up with the local forest schools and hopefully uh, privately contracting some of the workers to help me set up the spore source and do the three-day kids camp. We're going to be having microscopes for kids to look through. I have a friend who's been... Uh, working with game and fish in new mexico for a really long time i'm going to talk to him about opening up like a, a fishing portion for the kids because we'll be partially on the rio grande it gets kind of weird with getting licenses for all the kids so i'm wondering if we're on private property in the rio grande you know and like the spore source is going to be 
amazing. I'm hoping to pair with this nonprofit called Kids Cook, well, which like goes into low-income families and helps provide food access and food safety for all the communities in America suffering, not just all over the world, right? Like, what, like I think it's three, two in five families are, have, have food insecurity in your own neighborhood. So don't forget that, people. Like, and so we're trying to bring all this with like drumming and breath. We have a local guy who's been on a liquid diet for the last five years and he's uh, narrowed his window of consumption down to an hour a day. He does breatharianism, qigong. So lots of energy work and hopefully the land is going to be super sacred and we're going to have some special, special stuff to offer there. They have like a natural amphitheater, uh, an ancient archaic cave that's there on site and we'll be doing tons of community restoration projects we're going to try to get with the Rio Grande do water restoration projects uh I mean the list just goes on and on and on and on and we're just barely getting started on on like what we have to offer to the community and like uh it'll be it'll be a pretty special place so me and my buddy Julian are co-organizing it We've both put in hundreds of hours of work for free, you know, so the guy who made the comment, I'll just stay it out there for everybody. We're not, we're not getting paid at this. We've been putting in endless hours of free work, hundreds of hours of free work. Nobody's, nobody's colonizing or gentrifying any communities. Uh, I've been here for 34 years working in and out of many communities and I am, I'm, I'm going to continue working with tons of other communities. We even have Marissa C. DeBaca, who's, president of New Mexico Psychedelic and Science Society. And like, like I said, the list just goes on. We'll have some music in the evening, but mostly, mostly community save the planet vibes over here. And then uh, we just launched the gray area. It'll open in 2023. It's a community citizen science lab here at the Art Farm Unincorporated. Oh, that's kind of my company. We got you and I fungi, the gray area and the Southwest Funga Fest are kind of all the projects I'm juggling at the moment. But the idea of the gray area is just, again, a community citizen science lab that anybody open access, obviously it's not anytime you want. You just got to call up, make a reservation. Uh, I get approached by undergrads all the time who are, you know, studying and they're, and they're geniuses and they have all this information, but they don't want to spend the rest of their life in academia. And I come over here and I'm like, hey, well, it's kind of what we're doing. We're doing a little sociology. We're just getting into all the DNA. We're about to buy our minion today, probably. I just keep slowly deciding, but it's like, what are you waiting for? Get in that lab, buddy. Start doing stuff. And so the idea is anybody can come. You can bring your family. Like for me, I didn't get to like consciously look through a microscope until I was at a mycological foray in my late 20s. I did. I had a little kit microscope as a kid where you get prepared slides and look through them. I got one for my kids this Christmas just to try to get them to look through it. Uh, other than that, it took to like 30 years before I got any of that exposure because I wasn't in academia and I didn't have access to it. Although I was like an alumni and I have a degree and I got my degree. It's just like access to a full-on lab to do like cool ass citizen science research is not very very few and far i think there's like one in oakland oakland that alan rockefeller set up and i think like william's working on his shit out in pennsylvania but other than that i don't know a lot of it going on so like the idea is like yeah bring your whole family come by on a sunday i got fucking 
3,000 organic compounds you can come put on a slide and look in this microscope and you guys can spend a couple hours learning some biological stuff. Or if you're a local mushroom farmer who's small scale and you need access to large pressure cookers and flow hoods and like reserve your spot, come use the lab, come do what you need to do. Like that's, it's like the, it's, that's the idea behind it, right? Of course I created this so I can go outside at any point in time and do all this cool shit and create the largest like library of genetics and in, in plants and fungal in the entire southwest while i'm doing it but like yeah that's like what we're doing over here so thanks for letting me plug that i think that was a brilliant plug too man yeah <laughs> Well, at that, it's three hours and three minutes, so it's probably time to wrap up. Uh, I know Av's got a busy schedule, and Ken, you just are an animal, so you probably need a break. And I got Paul over here, who's been very patient with me. So, David, thank you so much for sharing your time, your energy, your beautiful energy with us today. And uh, keep keep us posted, my friend. Keep us posted. Thanks, Thank David. You all. Yeah, thanks, Layton. Thanks, thanks, Layton. Thanks, Ken. And uh, loving you all. We'll talk soon. Yeah. Thank thanks. you, Avin, Ken, too, guys. See you next week. All right, guys. And don't forget, we got Dragonfly Earth Medicine next week. So you're going to want to be on uh, with that. And that's a bunch more mushroom stuff, too. So absolutely. All right, guys, with that, I'm going to end the, the broadcast. Thanks, everybody that was in the live chat today. Don't forget to pass this out to your friends. Share it on your social media. The more people we get, the more, more we can progress and grow and save our planet. So let's do it, guys. Yo! <laughs>